Section two of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two, by James Boswell, Section two, seventeen sixty six continued. It appears from Johnson's diary that he was this year at Mr. Thrale's, from before midsummer till after Michaelmas, and that he afterward passed a month at Oxford. He then contracted a great intimacy with Mr. Chambers of that university, afterwards Sir Robert Chambers, one of the judges in India. He published nothing this year in his own name, but the noble dedication to the king of Gwynne's London and Westminster Improved was written by him, and he furnished the preface and several of the pieces which compose a volume of miscellanies by mrs anna williams the blind lady who had an asylum in his house of these there are his epitaph on phillips translation of a latin epitaph on sir thomas hanmer friendship and ode and the aunt a paraphrase from the proverbs of which i have a copy in his own handwriting and from internal evidence i ascribe to him to miss blank on her giving the author a gold and silk network purse of her own weaving and the happy life most of the pieces in this volume have evidently received additions from his superior pen particularly verses to mr richardson on his sir charles grandison the excursion reflections on a grave digging in westminster abbey there is in this collection a poem on the death of Stephen Gray, the electrician, which on reading it appeared to me to be undoubtedly Johnson's. I asked Mrs. Williams whether it was not his. Sir, she said with some warmth, I wrote that poem before I had the honor of Dr. Johnson's acquaintance. I, however, was so much impressed with my first notion that I mentioned it to Johnson, repeating at the same time what Mrs. Williams had said. His answer was, It is true, sir, that she wrote it before she was acquainted with me, but she has not told you that I wrote it all over again, except two lines. The Fountains, a beautiful little fairy tale in prose, written with exquisite simplicity, is one of Johnson's productions, and I cannot withhold from Mrs. Thrale the praise of being the author of that admirable poem, The Three Warnings. He wrote this year a letter, not intended for publication, which has, perhaps, as strong marks of his sentiment and style as any of his compositions. The original is in my possession. It is addressed to the late Mr. William Drummond, bookseller in Edinburgh, a gentleman of good family, but small estate, who took arms for the House of Stuart in 1745, and during his concealment in London, till the act of general pardon came out obtained, the acquaintance of Dr. Johnson, who justly esteemed him as a very worthy man. It seems some of the members of the Society in Scotland, for propagating Christian knowledge, had opposed the scheme of translating the Holy Scriptures into the Erse or Gaelic language, from political considerations of the disadvantage of keeping up the distinction between the Highlanders and the other inhabitants of North Britain. Dr. Johnson, being informed of this, I suppose, by Mr. Drummond, wrote with a generous indignation as follows. To Mr. William Drummond, Sir, I did not expect to hear that it could be, in an assembly convened for the propagation of Christian knowledge, a question whether any nation, uninstructed in religion, should receive instruction, 
or whether that instruction should be imparted to them by a translation of the holy book into their own language. If obedience to the will of God be necessary to happiness, and knowledge of his will be necessary to obedience, I know not how he that withholds this knowledge or delays it can be said to love his neighbor as himself. He that voluntarily continues ignorance is guilty of all the crimes which ignorance produces. As to him that should extinguish the tapers of a lighthouse, might justly be imputed the calamities of shipwrecks. Christianity is the highest perfection of humanity, and as no man is good, but as he wishes the good of others, no man can be good in the highest degree who wishes not to others the largest measure of the greatest good. To omit for a year, or for a day, the most efficacious method of advancing Christianity, in compliance with any purposes that terminate on this side of the grave, is a crime of which I know not that the world has yet had an example except in the practice of the planters of America, a race of mortals whom, I suppose, no other man wishes to resemble. The papists have, indeed, denied to the laity the use of the Bible, but this prohibition, in few places now very rigorously enforced, is defended by arguments which have for their foundation the care of souls. To obscure upon motives merely political, the light of revelation is a practice reserved for the reformed, and surely the blackest midnight of popery is meridian sunshine to such a reformation. I am not very willing that any language should be totally extinguished. The similitude and derivation of languages afford the most indutiable proof of the traduction of nations, and the genealogy of mankind. They add often physical certainty to historical evidence, and often supply the only evidence of ancient migrations, and of the revolutions of ages which left no written monuments behind them. Every man's opinions, at least his desires, are a little influenced by his favorite studies. My zeal for languages may seem, perhaps, rather overheated, even to those by whom I desire to be well esteemed. To those who have nothing in their thoughts but trade or policy, present power or present money, I should not think it necessary to defend my opinions, but with men of letters I would not unwillingly compound by wishing the continuance of every language, however narrow in its extent, or however incommodious for common purposes, till it is reposited in some version of a known book, that it may be always hereafter examined and compared with other languages, and then permitting its disuse. For this purpose the translation of the Bible is most to be desired. It is not certain that the same method will not preserve the Highland language, for the purpose of learning, and abolish it from daily use. When the Highlanders read the Bible, they will naturally wish to have its obscurities cleared, and to know the history, collateral, or appendant. Knowledge always desires increase. It is like fire which must be kindled by some external agent, by which will afterwards propagate itself. When they once desire to learn, they will naturally have recourse to the nearest language by which that desire can be gratified, and one will tell another that if he would attain knowledge he must learn English. This speculation may, perhaps, be thought more subtle than the grossness of real life will easily admit. Let it, however, be remembered that the efficacy of ignorance has been long tried, and has not produced the consequence expected. Let knowledge, therefore, take its turn and let the patrons of privation stand a while aside, and admit the operation of positive principles. You will be pleased, sir, to assure the worthy man who is employed in the new translation, that he has my wishes for his success, and, if here or at Oxford I can be of any use, that I shall think it more than honour to promote this undertaking. 
I am sorry that I delayed so long to write. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. Johnson's Court, Fleet Street, August thirteenth, seventeen sixty six. The opponents of this pious scheme, being made ashamed of their conduct, the benevolent undertaking was allowed to go on. The following letters, though not written till the year after, being chiefly upon the same subject, are here inserted. To Mr. William Drummond, Dear Sir, That my letter should have had such effects, as you mention, gives me great pleasure. I hope you do not flatter me by imputing to me more good than I have really done. Those whom my arguments have persuaded to change their opinion show such modesty and candor as deserve great praise. I hope the worthy translator goes diligently forward. He has a higher reward in prospect than any honors which this world can bestow. I wish I could be useful to him. The publication of my letter, if it could be of use, in a cause to which all other causes are nothing, I should not prohibit. But first, I would have you consider whether this publication would really do any good. Next, whether by printing and distributing a very small number, you may not obtain all that you propose and what perhaps I should have said first, whether the letter, which I do not now perfectly remember, be fit to be printed. If you can consult Dr. Robertson, to whom I am a little known, I shall be satisfied about the propriety of whatever he shall direct. If he thinks that it should be printed, I entreat him to revise it. There may perhaps be some negligent lines written, and whatever is amiss, he knows very well how to rectify." Be pleased to let me know from time to time how this excellent design goes forward. Make my compliments to young Mr. Drummond, whom I hope you will live to see such as you desire him. I have not lately seen Mr. Elphinston, but believe him to be prosperous. I shall be glad to hear the same of you, for I am, sir, your affectionate humble servant, Sam Johnson. Johnson's Court, Fleet Street, April twenty-first, 1767. To the same. Sir, I returned this week from the country after an absence of near six months, and found your letter with many others, which I should have answered sooner if I had sooner seen them. Dr. Robertson's opinion was surely right. Men should not be told of the faults which they have mended. I am glad the old language is taught, and honor the translator as a man whom God has distinguished by the high office of propagating his word. I must take the liberty of engaging you in an office of charity. Mrs. Healy, the wife of Mr. Healy, who had lately some office in your theatre, is my near relation, and now in great distress. They wrote me word of their situation some time ago, to which I returned them an answer which raised hopes of more than it is proper for me to give them. The representation of their affairs I had discovered to be such as cannot be trusted, and at this distance, though their case requires haste, I know not how to act. She, or her daughters, may be heard of at Canongate Head. I must beg, sir, that you will inquire after them, and let me know what is to be done. I am willing to go to ten pounds, and will transmit you such a sum, if upon examination you find it likely to be of use. If they are in immediate want, advance them what you think proper. What I could do, I would do for the women, having no great reason to pay much regard to Healy himself." I believe you may receive some intelligence from Mrs. Baker, of the theatre, whose letter I received at the same time with yours, and to whom, if you see her, you will make my excuse for the seeming neglect of answering her. 
whatever you advance within ten pounds shall be immediately returned to you, or paid as you shall order. I trust wholly to your judgment. I am, sir, etc., Sam Johnson, London, Johnson's Court, Fleet Street, October twenty fourth, 1767. Mr. Cuthbert Shaw, alike distinguished by his genius, misfortunes, and misconduct, published this year a poem called The Race, by Mercurius Spur, Esquire, in which he whimsically made the living poets of England contend for preeminence by fame of running. Prove by their heels the prowess of the head. In this poem there was the following portrait of Johnson. Here Johnson comes, unblessed with outward grace, his rigid morals stamped upon his face, while strong conceptions struggle in his brain, for even wit is brought to bed with pain. To view him porters with their loads would rest, and babes cling frightened to the nurse's breast. With looks convulsed he roars in pompous strain, and like an angry lion shakes his mane. The nine with terror struck, who ne'er had seen, aught human with so horrible a mien. Debating whether they should stay or run, virtue steps forth, and claims him for her son. With gentle speech she warns him now to yield nor stain his glories in the doubtful field. But wrapped in conscious worth, content sit down, since fame resolved his various pleas to crown. Though forced his present claim to disavow, had long reserved a chaplet for his brow. He bows, obeys, for time shall first expire, ere Johnson stay when virtue bids retire. The Honorable Thomas Hervey and his lady, having unhappily disagreed, and being about to separate, Johnson interfered as their friend, and wrote him a letter of expostulation, which I have not been able to find. But the substance of it is ascertained by a letter to Johnson in answer to it, which Mr. Hervey printed. The occasion of this correspondence between Dr. Johnson and Mr. Hervey was thus related to me by Mr. Beauclerk. Tom Hervey had a great liking for Johnson, and in his will had left him a legacy of fifty pounds. One day he said to me, Johnson may want this money now, more than afterwards. I have a mind to give it him directly. Will you be so good as to carry a fifty-pound note from me to him? This I positively refused to do, as he might perhaps have knocked me down for insulting him, and have afterwards put the note in his pocket. But I said if Hervey would write him a letter, and enclose a fifty-pound note, I should take care to deliver it. He accordingly did write him a letter, mentioning that he was only paying a legacy a little sooner. To his letter he added, P.S. I am going to part with my wife. Johnson then wrote to him, saying nothing of the note, but remonstrating with him against parting with his wife. While I mentioned to Johnson this story, in as delicate terms as I could, he told me that the fifty-pound note was given to him by Mr. Hervey in consideration of his having written for him a pamphlet against Sir Charles Hanbury Williams, who, Mr. Hervey imagined, was the author of an attack upon him, but that it was afterwards discovered to be the work of a garretteer who wrote The Fool. The pamphlet, therefore, against Sir Charles was not printed. In February 1767 there happened one of the most remarkable incidents of Johnson's life which gratified his monarchial enthusiasm, and which he loved to relate with all its circumstances, when requested by his friends. This was his being honored by a private conversation with His Majesty, in the library at the Queen's house. 
He had frequently visited those splendid rooms and noble collection of books, which he used to say were more numerous and curious than he supposed any person could have made in the time which the king had employed. Mr. Barnard, the librarian, took care that he should have every accommodation that could contribute to his ease and convenience, while indulging his literary taste in that place, so he had here a very agreeable resource at leisure hours. His Majesty, having been informed of his occasional visits, was pleased to signify a desire that he should be told when Dr. Johnson came next to the library. Accordingly, the next time that Johnson did come, as soon as he was fairly engaged with a book, on which, while he sat by the fire, he seemed quite intent, Mr. Barnard stole round to the apartment where the King was, and, in obedience to His Majesty's commands, mentioned that Dr. Johnson was then in the library. His Majesty said he was at leisure, and would go to him, upon which Mr. Barnard took one of the candles that stood on the King's table, and lighted His Majesty through a suite of rooms, till they came to a private door into the library, of which His Majesty had the key. Being entered, Mr. Barnard stepped forward hastily to Dr. Johnson, who was still in a profound study, and whispered to him, "'Sir, here is the king.' Johnson started up and stood still. His Majesty approached him, and at once was courteously easy. His Majesty began by observing that he understood he came sometimes to the library, and then mentioning his having heard that the doctor had been lately at Oxford, asked him if he was not fond of going thither to which Dr. Johnson answered that he was indeed fond of going to Oxford sometimes, but was likewise glad to come back again. The king then asked him what they were doing at Oxford. Johnson answered he could not much commend their diligence, but that in some respects they were mended, for they had put their press under better regulations, and were at that time printing Polybius. He then asked whether there were better libraries at Oxford or Cambridge. He answered he believed the Bodlin was larger than any they had at Cambridge, at the same time adding, I hope whether we have more books or not than they have at Cambridge, we shall make as good use of them as they do. Being asked whether All Souls or Christchurch Library was the largest, he answered, All Souls Library is the largest we have, except the Bodlin. I, said the King, that is the public library. His Majesty inquired if he was then writing anything. He answered he was not, for he had pretty well told the world what he knew, and must now read to acquire more knowledge. The king, as it should seem, with a view to urge him to rely on his own stores as an original writer, and to continue to help his labors, then said, I do not think you borrow much from anybody. Johnson said he thought he had already done his part as a writer. I should have thought so too, said the king, if you had not written so well. Johnson observed to me, upon this, that no man could have paid a handsomer compliment, and it was fit for a king to pay. It was decisive. When asked by another friend, at Sir Joshua Reynolds, whether he made any reply to this high compliment, he answered, No, sir. When the king had said it, it was to be so. It was not for me to bandy civilities with my sovereign." Perhaps no man who had spent his whole life in courts could have shown a more nice and dignified sense of true politeness than Johnson did in this instance. His Majesty having observed to him that he supposed he must have read a great deal, Johnson answered that he thought more than he read, that he had read a great deal in the early part of his life, but having fallen into ill health, he had not been able to read much, compared with others, 
For instance, he said he had not read much compared with Dr. Warburton, upon which the king said that he heard Dr. Warburton was a man of such general knowledge that you could scarce talk with him on any subject which he was not qualified to speak, and that his learning resembled Garrick's acting in its universality. His Majesty then talked of the controversy between Warburton and Loth, which he seemed to have read, and asked Johnson what he thought of it. Johnson answered, Warburton has most general, most scholastic learning. Loth is a more correct scholar. I do not know which of them calls names best. The king was pleased to say he was of the same opinion, adding, You do not think, then, Dr. Johnson, that there was much argument in the case. Johnson said he did not think there was. Why, truly, said the king, when once it comes to calling names, argument is pretty well at an end. His Majesty then asked of him what he thought of Lord Lyttelton's history, which was then just published. Johnson said he thought his style pretty good, but that he had blamed Henry the Second rather too much. Why, said the king, they seldom do these things by halves. No, sir, answered Johnson, not to kings. But, fearing to be misunderstood, he proceeded to explain himself, and immediately subjoined, that for those who spoke worse of kings than they deserved, he could find no excuse, but that he could more easily conceive how some might speak better of them than they deserved, without any ill intention. For, as kings had much in their power to give, those who were favored by them would frequently, from gratitude, exaggerate their praises, and, as this proceeded from a good motive, it was certainly excusable, as far as error could be excusable. The king then asked him what he thought of Dr. Hill. Johnson answered that he was an ingenious man, but had no veracity, and immediately mentioned, as an instance of it, an assertion of that writer that he had seen objects magnified to a much greater degree by using three or four microscopes at a time than by using one. Now, added Johnson, every one acquainted with microscopes knows that the more of them he looks through, the less the object will appear. Why, replied the king, this is not only telling an untruth, but telling it clumsily. For, if that be the case, every one who can look through a microscope will be able to detect him. I now, said Johnson to his friends, when relating what had passed, begin to consider that I was depreciating this man in the estimation of his sovereign, and thought it was time for me to say something that might be more favorable. He added, therefore, that Dr. Hill was, notwithstanding, a very curious observer, and, if he would have been contented to tell the world no more than he knew, he might have been a very considerable man, and needed not to have recourse to such mean expedients to raise his reputation. The king then talked of literary journals, mentioned particularly the journal des Savants, and asked Johnson if it was well done. Johnson said it was formerly well done, and gave some accounts of the persons who began it, and carried it on for some years, enlarging, at the same time, on the nature and use of such works. The king asked him if it was well done now. Johnson answered he had no reason to think that it was. The king then asked him if there were any more other literary journals published in this kingdom, except the monthly and critical reviews and on being answered that there were no other, his majesty asked which of them was the best. Johnson answered that the monthly review was done with most care, the critical upon the best principles, adding that the authors of the monthly review were enemies to the church. This the king said he was sorry to hear. The conversation next turned on the philosophical transactions, 
when Johnson observed that they had now a better method of arranging their materials than formerly. "'Aye,' said the king, "'they are obliged to Dr. Johnson for that.' for his majesty had heard and remembered the circumstance which Johnson himself had forgot. His majesty expressed a desire to have the literary biography of this country ably executed, and proposed to Dr. Johnson to undertake it. Johnson signified his readiness to comply with his majesty's wishes. During the whole of this interview, Johnson talked to his majesty with profound respect, but still in his firm manly manner, with a sonorous voice, and never in that subdued tone which is commonly used at the levee and in the drawing-room. After the king withdrew, Johnson showed himself highly pleased with his majesty's conversation, and gracious behaviour. He said to Mr. Barnard, "'Sir, they may talk of the king as they will, but he is the finest gentleman I have ever seen.' And he afterwards observed to Mr. Langton, "'Sir, his manners are those of a fine gentleman, as we may suppose Louis the Fourteenth or Charles the Second. At Sir Joshua Reynolds, where a circle of Johnson's friends was collected round him to hear his account of his memorable conversation, Dr. Joseph Wharton, in his frank and lively manner, was very active in pressing him to mention the particulars. "'Come now, sir, this is an interesting matter. Do favour us with it.' Johnson, with great good humour, complied. He told them, "'I found His Majesty wished I should talk.' and I made it my business to talk. I find it does a man good to be talked to by his sovereign. In the first place, a man cannot be in a passion. Here some question interrupted him, which is to be regretted, as he certainly would have pointed out and illustrated many circumstances of advantage from being in a situation where the powers of the mind are at once excited to a vigorous exertion and tempered by reverential awe. During all the time in which Dr. Johnson was employed in relating to the circle at Sir Joshua Reynolds the particulars of what passed between the king and him, Dr. Goldsmith remained unmoved upon a sofa at some distance, affecting not to join in the least in the eager curiosity of the company. He assigned as a reason for his gloom and seeming inattention that he apprehended Johnson had relinquished his purpose of furnishing him with a prologue to his play, with the hopes of which he had been flattered but it was strongly suspected that he was fretting with chagrin and envy at the singular honour dr johnson had lately enjoyed at length the frankness and simplicity of his natural character prevailed he sprung from the sofa advanced to johnson and in a kind of flutter from imagining himself in the situation which he had just been hearing described exclaimed well you acquitted yourself in this conversation better than i should have done for I should have bowed and stammered through the whole of it. I received no letter from Johnson this year, nor have I discovered any of the correspondence he had, except the two letters to Mr. Drummond, which have been inserted, for the sake of connection, with that to the same gentleman in 1766. His diary affords no light as to his employment at this time. He passed three months at Lickfield, and I cannot omit an affecting and solemn scene there, as related by himself. Sunday, October 18th, 1767. Yesterday, October 17th, at about ten in the morning, I took my leave, forever, of my dear old friend, Catherine Chambers, who came to live with my mother about 1724, and has been but little parted from us since. She buried my father, my brother, and my mother, 
She is now fifty-eight years old. I desired all to withdraw, then told her that we were to part forever, that as Christians we should part with prayer, and that I would, if she was willing, say a short prayer beside her. She expressed great desire to hear me, and held up her poor hands as she lay in bed with great fervor while I prayed, kneeling by her, nearly in the following words. Almighty and most merciful Father, whose loving kindness is over all thy works, behold, visit, and relieve this thy servant, who is grieved with sickness. Grant that the sense of her weakness may add strength to her faith, and seriousness to her repentance. And grant that, by the help of the Holy Spirit, after the pains and labors of this short life, we may all obtain everlasting happiness, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for whose sake hear our prayers. Amen. Our Father, etc. I then kissed her. She told me that to part was the greatest pain that she had ever felt, and that she hoped we would meet again in a better place. I expressed with swelled eyes and great emotion of tenderness the same hopes. We kissed and parted. I humbly hope to meet again, and to part no more. By those who have been taught to look upon Johnson as a man of harsh and stern character, let this tender and affectionate scene be candidly read, and let them then judge whether more warmth of heart and grateful kindness is often found in human nature. We have the following notice in his devotional record, August 2nd, 1767. I have been disturbed and unsettled for a long time and have been without resolution to apply to study or to business, being hindered by sudden snatches. He, however, furnished Mr. Adams with a dedication to the king of that ingenious gentleman's treatise on the globes, conceived and expressed in such a manner as could not fail to be very grateful to a monarch, distinguished for his love of the sciences. This year was published a ridicule of his style under the title of Lexiphanes. Sir John Hawkins ascribes it to Dr. Kenrick, but its author was one Campbell, a Scotch purser in the Navy. The ridicule consisted in applying Johnson's words of large meaning to insignificant matters, as if one should put the armor of Goliath upon a dwarf. The contrast might be laughable, but the dignity of the armor must remain the same in all considered minds. This malicious drollery, therefore, it may be easily supposed— could do no harm to its illustrious object. To Bennett Langton, Esquire, at Mr. Rothwell's, perfumer in New Bond Street, London. Dear Sir, that you may have been all summer in London is one more reason, which I regret my long stay in the country. I hope that you will not leave the town before my return. We have here only the chance of vacancies in the passing carriages, and I have bespoken one that may, if it happens, bring me to town on the fourteenth of this month, but this is not certain. It will be a favor if you communicate this to Mrs. Williams. I long to see all my friends. I am, dear sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson. Litchfield, October tenth, 1767. End of section 2. Recording by Katie Riley, February 2009.